This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. So we're in Exodus 27, if you want to open up your Bibles. And we'll be, it's a shorter chapter this week, but I'm going to take a little bit of time connecting back to the New Testament again and again and again, and I and we'll get through that. Um, again, with the context, I think it's important we get there, but let's uh, pray before we get started, and then I want to kind of walk through, like, how did we get to where we're talking about cubits? And, and to keep that in perspective a little bit, and I think Zach did a great job of that last week, and I just want to continue to be like, this is why we're here. Um, but let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you for those moments and those uh, times. We thank you for the difficult students in our classrooms, Lord. We thank you for replacing musicians when one leaves and you just fill another in. Lord, you've got it. Uh, you've got our lives under control. You're still on the throne. Uh, you are um, preparing a place for us. And you um, have thought well ahead of any of our trials. Uh, you've... Uh, seen how we're going to come out on the other end, Lord, and we just pray for your strength, your power, that we can lean on you in all those moments. Lord, help us to understand your word and to, um, Lord, just celebrate the idea that we can read your word, that we can come before the Holy Scriptures and we can see what you have to say. Uh, and Lord, we can we can trust in those things with our lives and we can, we can be rooted in those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Exodus 27... We are, we are at Moses and God having a conversation and God giving instructions to Moses on how to do this tabernacle. And I wanted to go all the way back to Genesis because in Genesis, humans sinned and God was dwelling with them. <coughs> and then he said, I can't dwell with you anymore. You're a rebellious, icky kind of creation and I can't, in my holiness, I can't dwell with you without bringing justice because he's perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful. So he's got to create, in order for the mercy to happen, there's got to be a process for that, for God to dwell with us again. Um, but he's got a plan for that, and it's almost like he had that plan from the beginning. He tells Abraham that the that Abraham's descendants are going to be afflicted for 400 years. So Exodus shows us, between Genesis and Exodus, we have this gap of about 400 years where the people are just in Egypt being afflicted, and they're slaves. And then they don't hear for God from God for 400 years. And it's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament too. But there's this gap of time where, if you think about it, they're being slaves in Egypt and there's no word from God. There's no prophet. There's no Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. There's no Moses yet. They're just in silence and God's not with them. And that had to be a horrible time for them to be just raised in that mentality. So God's going to pull his people out of that environment. And he's going to once again tell them, I'm with you. And I'm going to be with you, but here's how that's going to happen. So they're surrounded by Egyptian paganism, uh, the weird temples, weird, creepy festivals and ceremonies and sacrifices that they have. Um, and he's going to pull them out of that oppression, and he's going to speak to Moses to do it. And they go from 70-plus people with Joseph to a million-plus people with, Abraham, with Moses, and now God's got a plan. The plan is you're in no relationship with me, and I want you to be in relationship with me. I want to make you a space where you can come and be by me. And we're going to do that. Um, so God's reuniting his people. He has to teach them what that looks like. 
And as we get to the end of this bat, this design or this pattern that he has, he's making them a great illustration. And we have a lot of teachers in the room. Sometimes if you want people to understand a concept, you have to give them an illustration. And God's going to put this illustration in history, and he's going to have these Jewish people walk this thing around literally on their shoulders for around 2,000 years, right? And they're going to build a temple, I think, because they got sick of carrying it, right? But they're going to event- they're going to have this image of heaven or this idea of a relationship, <coughs> and they're going to be the model for it. He chooses this group of slaves to show the world what relationship with God looks like. And he puts it on their shoulders. He wants them to be a kingdom of priests. And we saw that in Exodus 19.6. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So in the end, God wants to abide and dwell with these people again. And when he pulls them out of Egypt, he gives them a hint of it. Because there's this cloud of glory that goes before them and protects them from behind. And they follow this God around the wilderness. And that's not going to change with the tabernacle. He's going to abide with them. The tabernacle then isn't necessary for them to see God, but it's necessary for them to understand how to approach God. Does that make sense? Because they'd already, there's the Shekinah glory and they followed through the wilderness already. So the tabernacle is really there as a model to show this is what this relationship is going to look like. (coughs) So At the end of tonight, even though we're going to kind of wrap up with only three things in this chapter, I want to kind of come back to the the Hebrews 8 and 9 and come back to some of those New Testament commentaries on this tabernacle and what this should mean to us. And I think as believers, because we are kind of New Testament era believers, this is amazing. And we should dwell on this. Like David wrote tons of psalms around this. (coughs) Can I get some pen drink? I'm going to be coughing all night, I think. And... um, The idea that David would just sit and think about this place and write music about it, that's amazing. And this is a place that inspired some of the greats in the Bible, this tabernacle or later on the temple, right? Because it was so beautiful to them, so wonderful to them that they could approach God. And we can too. And that's something that I think it's it's easy to take for granted, that we can just go pray to God. I can go down tonight, I can lay in my bed and I can talk to God. And they couldn't. And I forget or I want to remind myself of how devastating, how empty that would feel to go through life and not feel God's presence ever, right? And they did this for 400 years. They just existed like that. Thank you, sweetie. Mm-hmm. So let's start in on in Exodus 27. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. Um, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze, and you shall make its pans and receive, to receive its ashes, the shovels and its basins, and its forks and its fire pans, and you shall make all the utensils of bronze, and you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar, altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it, and you shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. That's the beginning of this. So we have this altar. So we've gone, um, an altar is uh, where we've seen covenants made, where we've seen sacrifices made. 
And covenants get made basically in blood. Here's a life sacrifice to bond us together. And if this bond is broken, a life has to get sacrificed to reunite it, right? So, or to restore that connection. So this altar is going to be for continual sacrifices before God. Um, and God, in his mercy, allows for a substitution. If you break covenant with God, you don't have to give up your own life. That's, I think, the enemy that says that to some people. You can substitute your life, and you could do that well before Jesus. You could go into the temple, you could hang out in the courtyard, and you could bring your best sheep from that season and kill that sheep and sacrifice it in order to restore your covenant with God. That's a really cool idea. It's extremely merciful. So that substitution's allowed, um, and that's called propitiation. It's called mercy. And there's a mercy seat that sits over the law on the ark in the middle of the tabernacle, and in verse 8, it says, as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. And Zach read the idea that there's a pattern. You shall make this according to the pattern. It's almost a refrain in the last two chapters. We keep seeing that. You shall do it this way because the, the Bible says that the pattern matters. It does. And I want to really emphasize this point. It's not just me, this guy you know, Sean, teaching the Bible that says the pattern matters. The Bible says the pattern matters. And I hope, as a teacher you go and look this stuff up and that is that you study it for yourself because I think that's where the faith comes from. Faith comes by knowing and knowing by the word of God. It doesn't come from listening to Sean on a Sunday night. You got to go dig it up. So get your pens ready and write these two down. Second uh, Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 8. Great chapters to read for your morning devotions this week um, that are about the tabernacle that God made, this tent that God pitched and he was going to live in it, right? So that commentary on these passages is largely where I get what I have to say about these passages, because I really want to stick to what the Bible says and not add to it or subtract from it. Um, Can you repeat the second one again? Hebrews 8, the whole chapter. And I'm going to read big chunks of Hebrews 9. Like the book of Hebrews is helping these Jewish people connect the dots. Like, look, God set this up. We don't have to put our faith... Uh, Peter says in... in uh, Second Peter, we don't put our faith in fables. We put our faith in something that's been around for 1,500 years. We put our faith in things we've seen and things we've heard. And the fact that the Holy Spirit's active in our hearts, these are also things that we feel, right? And that's where Ken Graves might be a little wrong. We get to see it. We get to hear it. We get to know that it works in our life. We get to see God active everywhere we go. That's not the same kind of faith of every other world religion out there. It's a very different faith because it's real. Right, And Peter really drives that point home. So the tabernacle is a demonstration of who God is. Hebrews 8, 5, just a sample of that. They serve the tabernacle as a, as a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, which is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make it according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So it's not just me saying, look, it keeps saying there's a pattern. Hebrews 8, 5 says, look, God said there's a pattern and we're supposed to follow it. The pattern matters. So I'm going to kind of come at it from that approach tonight. God's going to dwell among us. There's going to be this image that endures from Exodus. The image explains why thousands of Jewish people, after Jesus rose from the dead, this is a big question. Why did so many people come to Christ after the resurrection? Okay, so somebody rose from the dead. That's great. Let's say somebody rose from the dead today. Would we instantly follow that person's brand new religion? I wouldn't. I'd be skeptical as heck. Really? You rose from the dead? This isn't just a, you know, 
magic trick out of Las Vegas or something like that. I don't know if I'd go and change my life or worse yet, alienate myself from my family and my faith community to follow after this new prophet, right? But thousands of Jewish people did. And part of the reason, according to Hebrews, is because they saw that Jesus was, that Jesus fulfilled this. And that this whole thing was a shadow getting us ready to see Jesus. And I think that's awesome. Isaiah 16, five says, and in mercy, the throne shall be established. This throne sitting on the ark, this mercy seat, it's not established yet, according to Isaiah, right? It shall be established and he shall sit upon it in truth and in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and lasting righteousness. The, the tabernacle is not fulfilled. And the Old Testament people knew that. This thing isn't done. It's just getting us ready to see that when it is finished, there's going to be somebody sitting on that throne. The throne isn't meant to be empty forever. But all of this is a thousand-year narrative being written by the God of the universe, right? The timing on this is incredible because there's no human life that can take credit for it because it happens over hundreds of years. But we can look back and say, we don't put our faith in strange, weird things. We put our faith in this image that Moses set up. And Moses had no idea what any of this stuff would mean. So let's get into that a little bit. I want to focus on the position of everything, going back a couple chapters, the instruments that get used, which we saw a list of, the materials that get used, which I think that part is part of what gets built out over the Old Testament, and the purpose of it all. What's all this for? So... Verse one, you shall make an altar. The altar is going to sit outside the tent that Zach talked about last week. So this altar is out where everybody can see it. It's not a hidden secret thing. It's right out in the open. And going inside out, and just as a reminder, at the very middle of the, or the very, the point of this, the center point of the tabernacle is the law, right? It's not the ark. It's the law that sits in it, the rod of Aaron that sits in it, and the jar of manna that sits in it. God's law, God's leadership, God's provision. That's the middle of this whole relationship, right? Nobody but God gets to be in that space. Even the priest, the one once a year high priest that goes in doesn't get to open the ark and look inside. The only people that looked inside were in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie and they melted their faces, right? <laughs> Verse, uh, then, then you go out from that law and you've got this ark surrounding it made of wood and gold and on it sits this mercy seat on which gets the blood sprinkled that covers this over. God doesn't, from God's view above it, because he says he'll be above this, he doesn't get to the law before he goes to the mercy seat, right? Then you go out from that ark, and there's this veil that separates God and man, right? And only once a year does a priest get to go past that veil to tend to things, and basically atone or put that blood of the lamb on the mercy seat, right? There's a 2.5. There's another piece of furniture that hasn't been brought up yet, and I think that's cool because it has to do with humans going outside in. But going inside out, according to God, the next thing out is the lampstand and the bread of heaven. There's the light and there's the bread. And the way to get to God is through the light and the bread. There's only one way, only one path. Again, I'm kind of repeating what Zach got to last week. Then there's a 3.5. There's another piece of furniture that doesn't get talked about yet because it's Humans need it to go outside in, and that's this cleansing washing bowl called the ocean, right? But that hasn't been brought up yet, so we won't get to it. Then you get this altar that we just read about in the first few verses, this altar of sin, altar of atonement, that you have to give a sacrifice at the altar, and that sacrifice is what kind of gets carried through to God. And then there's this courtyard, which we're going to get to at the end of the chapter. There's a beautiful, huge, open courtyard that sits outside the tabernacle that anybody can be in, open to the public. 
Gentiles can come into the courtyard. I can come into the courtyard. Anybody can come into the courtyard. You can be filthy and dirty. Heck, you can even bring your pets. It's a dog and sheep friendly courtyard, right? There's feces in the courtyard because of that. There's other such things. It's dusty because you're kicking up dust from everywhere. It's not a great place, but people love being there because you're closer to God than you were when you were outside the courtyard. And this courtyard is gorgeous in that sense. And that's what David writes songs about, which we'll get to in a sec. Come to this altar. And when they say come to the altar and you sing that song in church, this is the altar we're talking about. It's this bronze altar with horns on the side and, and all this kind of thing. And what does that mean? And what does it look like? So instead of just singing the song, we get to study the altar tonight. I think that's kind of cool. This is the altar. Leviticus 17.1, Hebrews 9.22. Without a sacrifice, there's no remission of sin. That's the equation. You can teach that to kids. It's super simple. And it's like God's dealing with us humans like we're real idiots because we are. We can know something in our head and do the exact opposite thing with our hearts. And we do it all the time. And if you don't believe that, go back and re-listen to the Ten Commandments stuff and really test yourself. Are you really in your heart following the Ten Commandments all the time? And usually the answer is no, but you can be atoned. There's a covenant of life. That life gets owed. A life gets paid for a life. It's just. It's perfect in that sense. It makes sense to anyone, right? So you come in. You give up. Later we'll find out in Leviticus there's three appropriate sacrifices. Rich people give oxen. Not so rich people give lambs. And really not so rich people give pigeons, right? So no matter who you are, what walk of life you are in, you can find the appropriate animal to your budget and you can bring it into this courtyard, wait in line, and the priest will take it as your sacrifice that will atone for your sin. That's merciful, that a pigeon would pay for my life. I'm okay with that, okay? But the pigeon's life isn't eternal, it's temporary. So i got to come in every year and make these sacrifices. It's not an eternal thing. So before anything, repentance. This is step one, and I really thought about this today. This is kind of a hard chapter if you think about that, and it's the thing that a lot of churches want to just not talk about, sin, that we got to deal with sin before we can really come into the presence of God. And I think it's something that we sometimes overlook, um, but it's not easy to overlook if you really imagine yourself in this courtyard, this big open space with a giant bronze altar sitting right at the thing. And if you want to even come approach that temple, that tabernacle, that tent, you got to come to that altar and deal with that sin before you can really have your prayers go forward with the thing. And I was thinking in that sense, sin's a tough thing to talk about. A, we all have it. It's really tough to talk about it because you're admitting your own failings when you do. It takes extreme trust with people that you know you can trust your life to to talk about sin with, right? It takes a lot of accountability. Um, and God gives us kind of those relationships, relationships with our parents, our best friends, our spouses, where we can have those conversations and really wrestle with those things and be accountable to our sin with other people in our life. And then a second thought came to me as I was thinking about the bronze altar. You don't have to do anything if you want to go to hell, right? Hell's not the thing God does to people. It's the state we're already in. We're already separated from God. We don't have to go to the bronze altar. We don't have to talk about an atone for our sin. We can just let it go. We can just cover up our attention with everything else this world has to offer and never think about our soul. And I know a lot of people that do that, and I don't blame them. It's a, heart, it's a tough 
process of maturity to really think about your soul and wrestle with it and deal with it and address it in such a way that you, you can change, right? So redemption is the change. Redemption's the thing where God plucks people away from this giant marching tour to hell, right? And there's some people that say, wait, I don't want to go to hell. And God says, then come to the altar. The doors are open wide. The courtyard is open. Come into my presence and into my courts with praise and you'll be sanctified and glorified and redeemed. And that's just a wonderful thought. Okay? Verse 1, you shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square. Its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make its horns on uh, four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So the horns are essentially part of this altar. There's a utilitarian function to the horns. When you're going to line up a bunch of animals and kill them one at a time, the next animal in line knows what's happening. They're not that dumb. Right? So there's a panic that comes over animals when they see other animals being sliced and diced up on the altar, right? And then burnt. So if you put any sort of fire smoke around most animals, they run for the hills. They're automatically trained to do that. So the, the mewling and the howling and the screeching of these animals on the altar would have been totally chaotic. And you think of this happening 24 seven out in the courtyard, this is not a pretty sight. And and every representation of the tabernacle that I looked up online had a nice, clean courtyard. It was beautiful. Everything was sparkling and shining. But you think, they're killing animals all day and then burning the bodies to a crisp. This is incredibly messy, right? But So the horns is what you tie the animal to so they can't run away. And they have to be one with the altar. If they keep snapping off, oxen are amazing and strong right? These have to be super well-attached horns. There's also a, there's these pans. The pans are used to literally shovel ash out of this thing to keep the altar clear. So you got to be able to pull the grate out, lift the ash out, clear it, and you just move any ash if you've done that before. It makes little poofs of cloud that go everywhere. So there's always a mess. The basins are there to catch the blood because you don't want to let the blood go. The whole point of this life sacrifice is they want to take the blood, spray it all over the bronze and altar so it's going to get repeatedly cooled off by blood, right? And then they're going to bring in a small portion of that blood and they're going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat um, once a year and they're going to have these kind of things that they do. The priests, therefore, would not be in these... They would start the day in their shining white linens, but those linens would be literally just drenched in blood by the end of the day. And if you've ever seen a butcher at the end of a workday, they are not clean because things squirt and get messy. And I can, you know, I want to get that image in your head. I know it's a little R-rated, but this is something where you, it would be noisy, loud. It would be chaotic and messy, but there's an order to it. There's a line. There's an odor to it that would be absolutely wonderful. And that odor would go all over the camp in whatever way the wind was blowing. You would smell this barbecue that would be going on, okay? The forks are there to tend the barbecue. We still use forks to move meat on the grill and to move it around and make things, sure things are good. Sin offerings get burnt to a crisp. You just take the animal and burn it. It's a complete offering. Peace offerings, you don't burn it to a crisp. You burn it to a sweet, succulent, edible, tender cook. And then you eat that and you feast it. And when this courtyard was first up and rolling, people would come to the courtyard, they'd go home with like leftover meat, right? And you'd be satisfied. 
you'd come out of that courtyard with a pocket full. That changes totally by Jesus' time. It becomes the Renfest. You've got to pay for everything, right? And Jesus hates that. This should be a celebration, a community, a feast. Then you got the fire pans. Fire pans are interesting. They would use the fire pans to move the fire. So you'd pick up hot coals with the fire pan, and you'd use it to light the incense altar, which we haven't talked about yet, inside the temple. Leviticus 10.1, Leviticus 16.2, if you want to look up those fire pans and how that, that altar gets lit. You shall overlay it with bronze. Bronze has a practical use. It takes high heat. We still can use bronze in cooking. So it can take huge amounts of heat and not lose its shape. Uh, it's extremely durable. It can be beat, hammered, and you just kind of scour it out and it looks great again. So it's a wonderful metal in that sense. It's also an impure metal. You can't make bronze without mixing tin with brass. So you, it's an, it, immediately an impure metal that has to be concocted. You have to mix it with something else, unlike silver and gold, which we talked about the last two weeks, which are pure metals. And when you, when you cook them and take out the impurities, they're absolutely only silver or only gold. And today we mix gold with other things, but back then the gold would be gold. So these consistent patterns are things that the Jews look for. And I want to get to this a little bit because there's been a few things that we've talked about that have these patterns. And these patterns aren't just things that, you know, people think up in their professor offices. These patterns are things that the rabbinical tradition believed. And the reason they believed them could come one of two ways. They could look back through the Old Testament and see every instance where bronze get used. And then they could say, oh, every time bronze gets brought up, it seems to be an unnecessary thing to bring up. And it always gets associated with a moment of judgment. So the rabbis would say bronze is always associated with judgment. And they did this with things. And you think either that's because they're reviewing the whole Old Testament or bronze gets associated with judgment because it's what the altar is made of. So as the Jewish people went forward from Exodus 27, they started using bronze in moments of judgment. So either they kept the tradition or they reflected on the tradition, but the tradition was never in doubt. And, and Jewish people do look at the materials of the tabernacle and they see those things. And it's not a flippant meaning, it's a consistent meaning. So leaven, for instance, in the Bible is always associated with sin, always. So when you see leaven, it's an image God gave of sin. When you see linen, linen is always associated with righteousness. It's a pure fabric. Before it gets doused in blood, it's always associated. In fact, gold always gets associated with heavenly things or everything on the inside of the tabernacle. Zach taught us it has gold everywhere you look, right? The only silver is at the base of the, the woodwork, right? However the woodwork works. There's silver holding it up off the ground. And silver always gets associated with redemption, something that's been bought or paid for. Jesus was betrayed with silver, right? Things get purchased with silver. Silver's the, the, the metal of trade and market. It's about redeeming or purchasing things. The, the red skins on the tabernacle, red is always associated with blood or sacrifice because blood's red, or at least it is when it, it's, it's exposed to oxygen, but that's a whole scientific argument. Black usually gets associated with sin, right? And it's usually associated with darkness or things that you can't do. So um, sin is, sin and, and the black and the red and the brown of the leathers is everything you see on the outside of the tabernacle. And bronze is the metal that goes with that black earthly kind of thing. I know he does it right by this mic too. Um, 
we don't get to see heaven. Nobody gets to see that gold until they deal with the bronze. Until you deal with judgment, that impending judgment that's coming your way, you don't really ever get to be inside. In fact, most people don't get to go inside this tabernacle. It remains a hidden thing. So that bronze then, that judgment, is one piece with these horns, right? Here's another thing with bronze. And again, I, I kind of mentioned, I'm going to do this with one of the things because I get bronze. Um, it's in, So either bronze continues to get used because it's what the judgment altar is made of, or God kind of sets up this pattern. So in Jeremiah 52, it's an interesting chapter to look at. Jeremiah 52, the tabernacle gets dismantled by the Babylonians. It's the... It's the end. God is judging the people of Israel. It's amazing. You'd think they would be all excited and in despair about what happens to the gold and silver. Gold and silver gets mentioned once. The rest of the chapter, the bronze gets mentioned eight times. Now, either they wrote it that way because they wanted to associate everything with judgment, or they're inspired to write it that way, and we can look back and see that bronze always is, is mentioned in these times of judgment that comes up. Numbers 21, there's a bronze serpent. If you don't look on it, you're going to get judged. If you look on it, you're going to be healed, right? There's, and so that, that idea, why mention that it's a bronze serpent? Why don't you say it's a metal serpent? And they say bronze because there's an association of ideas that goes there. Don't trust my word on this. Go look it up, read it, judge for yourself, take it apart. Horns is another one of those things. Horns are always associated with power. So you put bronze and horns made of it, you get a powerful judgment that's going to happen. And those things are there. Try to read the book of Revelation and not encounter the word horns, right? And horns can be powerful evil or they can be powerful good. But in almost all of these dreams that people have and these prophetical visions that people have, horns represent the power of this world in a powerful kind of moment. So the problem with Revelation is, we're only in Exodus, and Revelation's the end of the book. And it always frustrates me when I talk to people that go right to Revelation and say, well, what about this, this, and that? And it's like, well, you're not supposed to understand that until you've read the rest of the book. What other book do you go to the last chapter and, and not read the entire book and critique it? Revelation's anticipating that you've seen the patterns. And that when it says that there's a beast that has many horns, you say, oh, bad guy with a lot of power. And you know that because you've seen that pattern again and again and again. And God's training his people to see it. He's training these Israelites, these slaves, to see him and to understand these big ideas, right? So he does these things. And it's important to note, Moses wouldn't have seen these patterns yet. He's just doing what he's told because he's Moses, right? And Moses, as we know, has made some mistakes. So don't panic. Come into the courtyard, face your judgment. Don't run away and scream. You just confess your sin, and if he, and he's faithful and just, and he forgives your sin, and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. That's it. It's so simple. So there's this powerful judgment of, that's coming your way. There's this pervasive idea that God will judge his people. He's already done it back in Genesis when the flood came, right? He's already judged the world, but he's... At this point, there's going to be this group of people that he redeems, just like he redeemed Noah. So this idea that horns are a symbol of power, I'm not going to get too far into it, but again, I want to give you some Bible verses. Don't take my word for it. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So go to some of these passages. You ready to write? Yeah. Daniel 7 and 8. Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. 
Revelation 12, 13, Revelation 5, 6. Horns get associated with power. And there's a lamb with horns, which means a powerful lamb, which I like that image, like because I think of lambs as very sweet and fluffy and tippable. Um, but here's a lamb that's going to come with power. And that revelation predicts that there's this sacrificial lamb that's going to be a little more than just a lamb, right? These horns also push people together in Deuteronomy 33, 17. Horns bring the world together. Horns give power to judgment. And the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, 1 Samuel 2.10. And he shall give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Right? So there's an idea here that this judgment altar covers the world. And I think the Jewish people lost track of this by Jesus' time. Like the whole world was welcome into the courtyard and the whole world was, there's this power of judgment that's going to go over the whole world, just like what happened with Noah. And that judgment is coming again, according to the rest of the Bible. Verse three, you shall make its pans and receive its ashes and its shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all of these things of bronze. These ashes throughout the Bible are used for, actually more than just the Bible, ashes are used for destruction and utter mourning and grief. So when people are in grief, they will cover themselves with ashes throughout the Bible. Where do you think they got the ashes from? Right here, right? You don't just get it from a campfire fire pit. You get those ashes from a place that had to do with a sacrifice, right? But they mean mourning, repentance, total destruction and devastation. I am absolutely broken and I am burnt. I'm wore out. And we see those prayers in the Psalms. We see, see the, that voice through the prophets. We see it all over the place, right? There's basins for the blood. They sprinkle on everything. Um, and then the meaning of these things. You've got wood, something of the earth. You've got bronze. You've got horns of power on an eternal sacrifice. There should be ever-going sacrifices on this altar. And everything's utterly turned to ash. There's salvation and judgment, but there's also this invitation to heaven. You can go to heaven or you don't have to go to heaven. Same decision Adam and Eve had. You can listen to God or you don't have to. But if you want to listen to God, there's a sacrifice that has to get made. And there's a repentance that has to be made. The judgment stretches out in power to the four ends of the earth. And we see ends of the earth in four. All We still use that phrase, right? The ends of the earth, the four corners of the earth. And we see that phrase of the corners of the earth all over in the Bible too. Even though the earth is not square, that's not what the Bible is saying. But that idea is that there's total coverage. When Peter has his dream in Acts 10, 11, he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him. And it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and it let down to the earth. There's going to be something that covers the whole earth, right? Not just a single lamb for my personal sins, but there's going to be something that covers everything. And it has four corners. So does the altar, right? He will set up a banner for the nations and he will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together. Remember, horns gather together. The dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, Isaiah 11, 10 through 12. God uses this idea of the whole planet and he uses corners. Most Jewish people or rabbinical tradition felt that that meant north, east, south, west, and that we have four points to the compass, so we use the number four for that. But it's not, it's clearly not that we think the earth is flat or that it is square, right? And there's other passages that reference the world as an orb, and you can see those too, but that's a whole other Bible study. 
We see that same sheet that Peter dreamed about in Acts 10s. We see that pop up again in Revelation 7.1. So all of these things start coming back up, especially when you read the last chapter. You're supposed to get the climax of the book because you've read the book, right? You shall make it a great, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar that the network may be midway up the altar. This is still how we build barbecues. You don't put the thing right up on the top because the wind will just put the fire out. You kind of set it down and in a little bit to protect your meat from all the dust and stuff when you open up the grill. And this grill didn't have a cover, so you didn't want the general wind to be messing up your peace offerings. You want to eat those things. The offering goes into the altar. It's not on the altar. And that's an interesting kind of thing, right? That sin gets thrown into the altar and forever burned away. So God invents the first barbecue grill. And this makes me really happy to think about that. It shouldn't. It should make me think about my sin. But it also makes me think about my forgiveness and great food. And that's important. I can't wait till we get to the feasts, by the way. If you want to read ahead into the Leviticus and read about the feasts, God knew how to party. And he knew how to do it with great food. But that's a whole other thing. Okay? So burying the grate into the altar facilitates a lot less of the ash getting spread all over the place. So it does help keep the courtyard a little more breathable, even though it's still going to be kind of smoky. Um, when the ash gets collected later in Leviticus, it's interesting because they wrap the ash in clean linens before they take it away. And they treat this ash with some sort of reverence. And I think that's really interesting that those sacrifices are things that God values. And he appreciates the redemption or the repentance of human beings. All four Gospels, when Jesus dies make a real special point that Jesus was wrapped in clean linens and hauled away as though he was a sacrifice that got pulled away from the temple and put into a tomb. And that's exactly how they handled the remains of these sacrifices. They would wrap them in linens. So when, the, when you have all four gospel writers making a point of that, it's because they knew how this thing worked. And they knew what Jesus called himself, that he was the Lamb of God. God's going to provide an eternal sacrifice that will do this forever, right? And the priests had to be like, that was 1,500 years of work and we're finally done. But they weren't. They actually didn't want to believe in Jesus. But there were some that came and, you know, anyways, that's a whole other thing. Verse 6. i got to stay to my script. Verse 6. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, same as the ark. Overlay them with bronze, not the same as the ark. The poles shall be put into rings and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. Bear it? You got to take a bronze altar that's this big and put it on your shoulders and what you get is a little pole. I don't know how many of you people carry heavy weights, but can you imagine having to do an eight-hour walking day with a bronze altar? I mean, I'd be getting Gustav to take my place really quick. Like, I'm wore out. You want to step in here? Um, these priests had to get pretty, you know, burly to handle this stuff. But those poles are to carry this thing. You shall make ho- you shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. Again, it, there's a pattern here. It's portable. The bronze would make this thing amazingly heavy, but it's ready to move. And that sacrifice, it's not a permanent place. It's not some holy place on the planet. We don't have to travel to Mecca to get to it. This this idea is going to move around the world and it's going to be portable. I wonder if when they traveled, they kept everything in the same pattern. 
and there's no place that I could find that says what they did when they traveled. But the ark and the bronze altar are roughly the same size. In fact, the height of the bronze altar is exactly the same as where the height of the ark with the mercy seat on top, they would match. And so you can see this gold ark in front and a bronze altar behind. And I wonder if they carried the lampstand and the show table because the show table had rings and poles too. And if they would carry this all in order. And I, and I imagine they would. I would, if I were a priest, I'd be like, let's just keep it in the same order because the pattern is matters to God. But again, the Bible doesn't say it. I don't want to add that. I try whenever I'm going to make a meaning out of something. If I don't see it somewhere in the Bible, I try to make sure you know this is just Sean's imagination here so that you can distinguish between those things. The court of the tabernacle. Okay, I've referenced it a lot. This got me really excited. Imagine the picture. Like paint this in your head a little bit, right? You got all these tents for all these tribes of Israel stretching out in all directions. Most of them covered with goat skin. That was the most common tent material. Making most of these tents black felt stuff. So you got this scattering of black stuff in the middle of the desert. And right in the middle are these white sheets that surround an ugly little tent in the middle. Right? But the, there's this white in the middle of all this black. Right? It would have been a really stunning sight to see as you approach the tribe of Israel, the, the nation of Israel that's in the wilderness. You shall make the court of the tabernacle... For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their brands shall be silver. Likewise, along the north, there shall be hangings, 100 cubits long, and its 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets of bronze with hooks and pillars and their bands of silver. So silver's at the top, where you could see it from a distance, really shining in the sun. And at the bottom of those pillars is bronze. Remember in the tabernacle that Zach talked about, the silver was at the bottom and the gold was all around. But when you get outside of the tabernacle, you got bronze on the bottom, silver at the top, right? Along with the width and the, of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. And the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. And the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side, there shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All right. There's a tent and around the tent is this giant linen. It's like, you know, when you hang laundry from the clotheslines and there's kind of these billowing sheets in the wind. Now we've got hooks or pegs that tie those things to the pillars. So that's just a fabric wall around this thing not for high security, right? This is not to keep thieves out or to keep anybody out, but it's to create a space that's separate from the rest of the world that anybody can walk into, but there's one way in. And there's one door on that east side that you can come in, that east gate, right? So there's one big area around it, be about 150 feet by 75 feet, nowhere near as big as Solomon's temple. So when you see images of Solomon's temple, that was this massive, huge courtyard. The tabernacle was... You know, they only had a million, two million people that would kind of make their way in and out of that place throughout a year. But by Solomon's day, you had tens of millions of people coming from all over the world for the feasts, and they would make their, they'd take their turn. They'd stand in line. They'd kind of get into the courtyard and get all excited. And when you get into the courtyard, there's going to be musicians. Off in the corner over there is some guy teaching about, you know, some Old Testament passage. So you could go sit and listen to great teachers in the courtyard. You'd stand in line, you'd try to not listen to the cows that were upset about what was coming in their life, 
right? There'd be these altars, you'd smell barbecue. There'd be that kind of smoke feeling. The dust would probably get kicked up, but I imagine as they spread the blood around, that blood would actually keep the dust from poofing up too much, right? So you'd be walking on all this sacrificial blood as you go around in the courtyard, right? They'd be catching a lot of it in bowls, but they're also just spraying it around, right? And splattering it on things. So this area becomes kind of a festival area, kind of a celebration area, right? With no idols, no big images to bow down to or worship, just people hanging out with their family, with nothing else to do but wait in line, right? Sounds almost like Sabbath, just sitting there looking at each other going, what are we going to do with our afternoon? How are we going to spend our day? And then eventually you find things to do, right? Remember Jesus' parents, he, they lost him. And he was just hanging out in this courtyard because he's like, where else do you think I'd be? I'm going to be in the courtyard as much as I can. And his mom and dad were like, well, yeah, but you really scared us. Now let's go back and head back home. The linen signals a special area, not a defensive area. It's this kind of space that gets opened up. For the gate of the court, there should be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And we talked about that two weeks ago. It's going to be beautiful. The courtyard has the beautiful screen. The tabernacle had the embroidered thing, which would have had, a, it wouldn't have looked as nice. But the courtyard is really welcoming to anyone. It's made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. It's quite a gate. The same colors as the screen. There's only one way in. 20 cubits. Remember, Zach talked about the length of a cubit. That's not that big of a gate. It's a narrow gate. Okay? And the path to the heaven is straight from that gate. Everything from the east is one gate, one gate, one veil, right? At the pillars of the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be silver and their brockets, sockets bronze. And the length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout and the height 5 cubits, made of woven linen, the sockets of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So those pegs, again, will hold down the sheets so they don't flop around making kind of a wall around this area. Consistent, when you take those cubits, it's around seven and a half feet tall. So a good jump from a tall person, you can almost see over this sheet, right? It's just enough for most humans to have to go around to the gate to get in, right? And anyone who comes in from a different direction is like a thief, right? They're coming in kind of where they shouldn't be. But it's easy to see, and from a distance, especially if you're up on a hill, you would easily be able to see into this courtyard and see all the people and the animals. And like, you can see that's where the party's at. And you can see the smoke coming up and you can see a Shekinah glory over this odd looking tent in the middle, right? It'd be kind of an amazing thing. But it, it, it occurred to me if I'm sitting on that hill looking down at all these black tents with this amazing white courtyard and this tent in the middle and this cloud and smoke and barbecue, that's where I'm going if I'm a visitor. If I'm a foreign dignitary, I'm going, it's clear that's where you go, right? This is the center of these people. This is what these people are all about. You introduce yourself as a nation and God's right at the middle of who they are. And I thought, you know, that's how we should be. When we introduce ourselves to people, they should immediately see that God's right in the middle. And it should be an inviting space and a kind of space that people want to go to. And it maybe should smell like barbecue. I'm just saying. (laughs) I always tried to convince stuff to barbecue out in the garage because the smell would stick around for two, three weeks. And when it gets to be winter, I can use, she usually, because she thinks it's a fire hazard. And I'm like, fire? I mean, come on. If you're going to burn down your house, that's the way to do it. 
Um, but anyways, uh, I loved it because the whole car would smell like barbecue. You'd park the car in the garage afterwards, and, there was, and you didn't like that as much either. But I sure didn't. I mean, I I think they should make barbecue flavored air freshener. You know, I think that'd be just. We always do flowers. There's other good smells in the universe, but barbecue. You know, little cologne. <laughs> That cures me. You know what I'm talking about. You, you know what we're doing, Sean, for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Barbecue cologne. I'd come in and people were like, man, you smell like campfire. And I'm like, I know, right? Where was I? <laughs> Look, there'd be a party. That's what my notes say. Look, a party. That's what you'd see when you come upon Israel. You'd see this celebration. That's what it would look like from a distance. This invitation to come into this space there's no guards at the door. You just come in and there's just this celebration going on, right? Now we have language to talk about God in detail. God's done it. Here's how you have a relationship with me. Here's what it looks like. And it's not that elaborate. It fits. But we have these copies of things in heaven laid out so we can see how valuable we are to God, how precious we are that God would... instead He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, but then he creates this way for them to come back into his courtyard we can come and dwell with God, right? And God's going to make that space for us. In 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 8, they go into this concept in detail. And what they say in the New Testament is you are the tabernacle. That heart that you have should have God in the middle of it. If you don't, you're just a a party in a courtyard with no center, right? You have a God-shaped hole in your heart, if you've ever heard that phrase right? But you should be a tabernacle. I want to read you some passages from Hebrews 9. So if you want to flip forward to that, I'm going to read a little bit. But boy, this opens your eyes to Hebrews 9, right? There's a tabernacle, there's a courtyard, and Hebrews 9 makes this connection super clear for us, right? Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So really quickly in verse 1 of Hebrews 9, this is an earthly sanctuary. This tabernacle, it's, of the, it's, it's not eternal. It's just here to show us something. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which it was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, that part of the tabernacle called the holiest of all. Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. You see the connection? I mean, I, I'm, again, Hebrews is making this really clear for us. They're talking about the tabernacle here. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. I'm going to skip down to verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. These are earthly creations, where lambs, oxen, and pigeon are earthly sacrifices for this earthly model. But there's an eternal model that's coming that has an eternal sacrifice for our eternal souls, right? The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. Christ didn't go into the tabernacle and the temple. He went into heaven itself for us. The real deal, right? Which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus is our mediator, right? We go up to the bronze altar. We give our sacrifice. The priest goes marching into the holiest places, past the showbed, past the light, gives our sacrifice, makes a prayer for us. 
the prayer incense altar, that smoke goes through the veil into the presence of God, but all that's earthly. The real deal is we go up to the bronze altar, we sacrifice our lives, and Jesus says, you keep your sacrifice. I'm going to put myself on the altar for you. And then in his eternal life, I'm going to go into heaven in the holy place, and I'm going to talk to God for you. Oh, my goodness. You imagine how the Jewish people are like, this all makes sense. When you see a guy rise from the dead, he's the eternal sacrifice that is going to be here. And that's what Hebrews is trying to say. This is why thousands of Jewish people became Christians within weeks of the resurrection. Nothing else explains it, but this image does. Oh my goodness, that's why people change their whole life radically to follow this eternal sacrifice. That's beautiful, that's sanctified, that's glorified, that's redemption. So millions of people around the world can understand it like babies, right? Jesus is your sacrifice. Good news, right? I gotta go tell everybody it's good news. You are not doomed to your sin. You are not on your way to hell. You can change and redeem yourself, confess your sin, and God will purify you and he'll go talk to God for you. That's super good news. I don't care where you're from, what religion you're in, you believe there's a God, that God sent his only son to die for you and to go into the bronze altar, not on top of it, into it, burn to a crisp, go into heaven, right? And he's gonna be taken away. His body was hauled away in linen cloths, just like the ash gets hauled away in linen cloths, right? So heaven and its courts are open wide to anyone. Anyone can approach the bronze altar. That's a massive theme for the Old Testament. I want to give you a bunch of verses on this because it's amazing how often this courtyard comes up. The courtyard comes up more often than the the ark. But that makes sense because the courtyard is where the people were. It's where we got to hang out. It's where any those Levites, they get all the fun stuff, but we get the barbecue. And I don't know who got the better off. They got to carry a bronze altar on their shoulders. That's not the winner job here. The winner job is to come in, give a sacrifice, be atoned, and walk out with barbecue in your pocket, right? That's the good job. The Levites had to do the dirty work for all of us. That changes by Jesus' time, right? The priests, instead of being dirty on the outside and clean on the inside, the priests become clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. And that's what Jesus said to him. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're sick on the inside, but boy, you look good. You look great. You speak wonderfully, but you're sick on the inside because you do not know God. Because if you knew the God, you'd know me because I come from my father, right? And Jesus really got after him on this stuff. But at this point, those priests, man, they were in the ash, the blood, the dirt, the dirt floors. It wasn't this nice marble Solomon temple going on, right? With all these clean things going, right? Blessed are those that dwell in the court, Psalm 65, 4. My soul longs to be in the court. They got to wait all year for the for the feast, the festival. And all year, all I can think about is I can't wait to go back to the courts. Especially a young shepherd sitting out there with a sheep all day. He just thinks, man, I can't wait for the party. When I get a break from my shepherd work and I get to go listen to the musicians, hang out with the teachers, eat the barbecue, fellowship with the other people that want to come before God too, the faithful. Man, I can't wait to go into the courts. Psalm 84, 2. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 84, 10. Give the Lord, give the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Psalm 96, 8. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving 
and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him. O you servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of God. Psalm 135, 1 through 2. The New Testament has very little mention of the courtyards. But the Old Testament, this is where people celebrated God. This was the peace, the grace, the glory, and the presence of God. It's just to hang out with other people that love God. Help me to come into those places, to come in there with praise and thanksgiving. So we have this image of the outside in that starts to get formed, right? The last couple weeks, Zach and I walked you from the implements, starting with the law, moving outward. This is God's approach to us. He's going to make a, a way for us to get to him, right? But now just picture it a little bit. What does it look like to come from the outside in, to see all the black tents, this white sheet area, and just be like, what is going on down there? The noise, the, the chaos, the festival-like atmosphere, this kind of joy and praise and singing as people gave their sacrifices to the Lord, right? These silver pillars that shine, like when the sunlight hits silver, it just shines. And you can bet there were Levites that had to climb up the pillars and get them nice and clean. And it was probably the young 12-year-old Levites, right? You go clean the pillars. Um, but these things would have shined and they would have glowed on a nice day, right? There'd be this ugly patch tent of red and brown in the middle. Why are you celebrating that? Because there's nothing on the outside appearance that would be comely or attractive, right? It's what's on the inside that counts, just like our hearts, right? It doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from. What's on the inside? What kind of person are you? Is it, does it shine on the inside? There's a narrow gate. Really, I got to walk all the way around to that one. Can't you put gates on all four sides? Solomon did. There's gates all over the place. But in this one, there's only one gate. There's a narrow gate that you got to get through. You enter into the courtyard. It's dusty and it's awesome, but people are celebrating in this dust, right? In this amazing space that's noisy. And, 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 and some of us don't like noisy spaces with lots of people, right? Right, Zach? Like, that's not always attractive for all people, right? So the courtyards in Solomon's day would have edges. Like, they would put these colonnades around the side where you could go into more quiet spaces. So there would be courts next to the courts as we go on in time. The Lord expands the courtyard. The temple stays pretty much the same. But the Lord makes space for people that don't like all the clamor and the noise. You would have street musicians all the way leading up into this courtyard, right? because there were whole tribes of Levites that were committed to songs 24-7, writing new music to the Lord all the time. So you'd be coming in every year, and the Levites have spent all year writing a new set of songs for you to hear. And they would teach them to you, because the whole pleasure of these songs was for the nation to sing them together, right? Sometimes they'd even write them down, especially if the king wrote them. They'd write them down and call them Psalm 29, and then they would hand them out and be like, sing the king's song, I think. So those got kept, and there'd be some songs that were like Amazing Grace. We sing it a hundred years later because it just hits our hearts. And that's what these songs are supposed to do. They're supposed to create an emotional state as you walked into this courtyard and hung out with God's people, right? You'd have to wait in line. And I think that's okay, not at the DMV, but at the courtyard. <laughs> this is the kind of space where you'd bring your lawn chairs and you'd tailgate. Right? And just hang out and be like, and you'd see your friends because you haven't seen them for a while. You've been out with the sheep all year. So you get to hang out. This is where the Jewish people would probably court each other in the courts, right? And you'd see that young lady from the tribe of 
Simeon or Gad, the Gad girls were they were rad. And you'd see that, and you'd be like, I'm gonna go talk to her. Is it okay if I go talk? Oh, yeah, yeah. We got all day. You go talk to the young lady. But if you like her, you should have our families have some conversation. There's exchanges and deals to be made. So it was a time that's where you'd want to be. You'd get these festivals, and man, I get to meet the opposite gender. I get to hang out with my good friends. The kids could probably go outside the courtyard and play some, you know, kickball, and have some, you know, things where the kids can just run around and be crazy. And that would be this tight Jewish community that celebrates and has joy together. Can you see why the Jewish people were the envy of the world? Why they thrived everywhere they went? Because these things brought them together. They brought families together and they did it right. You go into the tabernacle. You're going to be a priest now. You take this sacrifice off the bronze altar. You go into the tabernacle. To your right is the showbread that's baked fresh every week. So it smells like bread when you get inside these leathers. It's warm. It's dry. It's cool. Zach talked about that. It's totally dark except for the lampstand on your left which bounces off the white sheets and the gold metal everywhere. And it looks glorious, but it looks totally otherworldly because it's not sunlight, it's this light that endures. It's lit by olive oil, which smells amazing. So you've got this thing. And then in front, right in front of you is an incense altar that smells like incense, right? And so you get this smell of frankincense and myrrh as you walk inside the temple and olive oil to your left and fresh baked bread to your right. And then there's a veil covered with angels that's glorious, beautiful embroidery because nobody does second chop work artwork when they're making that veil. They're taking their best arts artists and making these things. And you don't get to go beyond the veil because you're just a normal priest. You're not the high priest. The high priest only goes past that veil once a year to sprinkle some blood on the mercy seat. And then the high priest gets out of there, right? That's God's space. And we can dwell next to God. You go back out, you're in that courtyard. I think if you're in that courtyard, God's Holy Spirit is all around in that courtyard. The fellowship, the beauty, the song, it's all over the place. So on that ark is mercy. And you know, God is a God of mercy who won't judge if you've come before him and entered into his presence. He's going to save you just like he saved Noah because not everybody got killed in the flood, right? So this is an invitation to the entire world and it's an invitation that anybody can come to. Levitical law has rules for other non-Jewish people can become Jewish people. It's not a biological ethnicity, right? So there's whole things set up. Anybody who wants to be part of Israel, you just got to come before the Lord, sacrifice, repent of your sins. If you're a guy, you got to go through another kind of surgical procedure, right? Which isn't so pleasant, but anybody can be an Israelite. It's open door. The courtyard, anybody can come in. Visitors can come in. You can come into the presence of God. If you want to be in the presence of God, there's God right in the middle of the planet, right? And people come from all over the world. Throughout the Old Testament, people come from all over the planet to hang out in the tabernacle and in the temple, Right? It's part of the narrative of Solomon. It's like all the kingdoms of the earth knew of this nation of people that God had blessed and ordained. Right? Then you leave, especially at peace offering time, and you get food as you leave. You're fed as you walk out the door. Why did Jesus get so ticked off when the courtyard became a nasty place? By the time of Jesus, people didn't want to go to the courtyard because it was just everybody's trying to sell you something. Everybody's trying to rip you off. 
There's market stands everywhere and you know the weights are false, but you gotta do it because if you love the Lord, they're gonna rip you off when you, and they're gonna, you're gonna bring in the best animal you have and they're gonna find something wrong with it and say, no, your sheep doesn't work. You need to buy one of our patented Levitical priesthood certified sheeps that have already been checked out and they cost more than you can afford. So it breaks your bank to go in and do this. And then your heart, you're like, I don't really want to go to the tabernacle. Can we skip it this year? I just want to stay home and watch Sunday morning cartoons. You know? And then Jesus sees this happening to his con He doesn't start his ministry until he's, he's 30. He watches this for 30 years. And he sits down and loves being with the teachers, but he can hear his parents go, man, they raised the rates on the, on the sheep again this year. Those Levites, man, they're just taking all the money. Where does the money go? What are they spending it on? They're not taking care of their parents because they're saying they're Levites so they don't have to take care of their parents. So they're not even taking care of their families. And all these Levites do is find fault with us. So the courtyard becomes a place of criticism. It becomes a place of accusation. It becomes a place of greed, right? And Jesus, man, that is not what that courtyard is supposed to be. And by the time he's 30, he's had enough. And he gets a whip out and he starts whipping them. Like, this is not the courtyard God wanted to have. The courtyard's supposed to be open and welcome. And then I thought, what's going on in our church today? We all go to churches. We've all grown up in these churches. I think most of us have grown up going to church, right? Some of them, not all, but some of them are becoming a place of greed, where all they do is they want your money. They got some scam or a thermostat on the wall showing how much money they've given, right? They're a place of accusation where people come in and they don't feel welcomed. They're accused of all their sin and all that happens is you got these Levites pointing out everything you've done wrong and how much more you need to do to account for that sin, right? And you look at some, some of these churches have even started to say, you can't even talk to God. Only I can do that as your priest. I'm your mediator between you and God, not Jesus, me. How evil is that? How destructive is that based on this image that God wanted to have? Everybody's welcome come into my courtyard. You can come into the courtyard and not confess your sin before the altar. You can just hang out and eat the barbecue, right? Yet we tell people you can't smoke in church. You got to fix these things that are wrong with your life before you can come into our churches. Baloney. That's not the courtyard. The courtyard was wide open. You want to get up and step up to that bronze altar, then you can be heard by God. You don't want to step up to the bronze altar? Listen to the music. Listen to the teaching. Hang out with your friends and family. Go court that young lady or young man and enjoy the courtyard. And just be blessed by what all of God's people have to offer you. You know, we'll take care of you if you're in the courtyard. You come into our church, you're our brother or our sister. And you can deal with your sin when your heart convicts you to deal with your sin. Because that's the only way to God. It's a thin and narrow path. But there's a wide open courtyard that comes before that. And I think that's important for us to know because so many churches are saying you have to be sanctified before you can be redeemed. And that's the opposite. You can welcome and come into the presence of God well before you are repentant and sanctified. Then there's the care of the lampstand. I know I, I have this really thing at the end. There's like this epilogue at the end of this chapter. And we're gonna, you know, use olive oil. I already talked about olive oil, didn't you? You shall command the children of Israel, they shall bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. So there's going to be this lampstand inside the tabernacle. And all of a sudden they have this little thing. And we're going to go back and we're going to, this is the kind of oil you're going to put that lampstand 
Um, it's pure oil. And the way, when they say pressed olives, there was a process for this. You could get olive oil, but it would have stuff in it, like dredge, you know, when you do wine and you scoop out the, like, the, the grape parts and to purify the wine. So there, you could burn any kind of oil, but a pressed oil, you'd put it in a basket and you'd press the basket from all sides, right? Which wouldn't crush the olives, but what, what it would do is we'd get that oil to come out the bottom, right? And then you would be able to collect that pressed oil and it was pure and it burned longer because it was the very best stuff and it was awesome. So, and it made me think of that idea that when, when, um, when the Bible talks about that God's people are pressed but not crushed, right? Perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, that there's something that's going to be in these these lampstands. And I, I don't know if that's a reference to the olives or not. That's just my, what occurred to me when I was reading about these pressed olives. So there's a, and then it occurred to me, wait, up until verse 20, that tabernacle is pitch black. There's no visibility inside the tabernacle until that lamp gets lit. And it doesn't get lit till there's oil in it. So there's a light that shines in an otherwise a very dark place. And then I was like, oh, so what's the light? Because this is going to be a statute forever, right? So forever includes today. And there's a light that should be lit somewhere on the planet that we should be able to see today. Or the Bible's wrong because it's not an eternal statute, right? So, Or it's eternal in that it existed and then it's memorized. But it's not a symbol. It's a statute. It's something that's always there. So the Bible makes this clear too. Um, Psalm 119.105 is a temple era song. It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The path is the path to heaven, right? The path through the tabernacle. We don't have to guess what the key elements of this are when the word just tells us. We just have to read the word and hears us. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus starts to create a new idea about this light, right? It's not just the word that's the light. Um, in John 8:12, Jesus speaks to his disciples saying, I am the light of the world and that he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And when you, when you see the light with the darkness, you're thinking, think about a dark tabernacle and then all of a sudden the light gets lit. Or when you turn on the light in a dark room, Jesus puts a time limit on that statue. So he doesn't say he'll be the, he'll be the light forever. Listen to this. John 9, 5, next chapter. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he conditions the timeline on him being the light. Well, that's interesting. So then what? Jesus also says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. However, the light that's in this tabernacle is hid by four layers of tent, according to Zach. And the Bible. Zach is just reading the Bible, right? <laughs> this is a pattern for our understanding. The light is not supposed to be hidden. It's supposed to be for the whole world, all four corners. The power of that light should be equal to the power of judgment that comes everywhere. And when someone feels judged, you should be there to tell them there's a way out. And I think somehow or another, God makes that happen. And when I get to heaven, I want to see how that worked. And I get eternity to study it. I can be a geek for all eternity. Second Peter 1, 12 through 21. I want, this is one worth turning to. I'm going to read a lot of it. So Second Peter uh, chapter 1. It's way forward in your Bible. If you get to the Book of Mormon, you've gone too far. Uh, 
All right. My buddy Chris may someday hear these sermons. And Chris, that was for you, brother. He's my Mormon friend. That He'll be a Christian someday. I know it. All right. For this reason, and I'm going to start in 1 Peter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I won't be negligent to remind you always of these things. Right? In the same way that you come to Bible study when I do teachings, or Zach did a teaching last week, I really hope someday you're leading the same Bible studies. And you got the same resources, you got the same Bible I do, you got the same Holy Spirit in you that Peter had in him. Right? There's nothing less about you than these disciples and heroes we read about. You can be at that point too if you do what they did and read the same book that they did. Right? I won't be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. You've read the word. You've got through the whole Bible. Verse 13, I think it's right. Yes, I think it's right. As long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as the Lord Christ showed me. At some point, you got to shed that sense, get it off. you got to get rid of those things that conceal the heaven that's in you. Moreover, verse 15, I will be careful to ensure you that you always have a reminder of these things even after I'm dead. Peter's writing this right before he dies. And remember, God's shown him that he will die in that moment. Remember, he's like, well, what about John? You said, he's like, what difference does it make to John? You're going to die a miserable death. And whatever I do with John is John's business. Remember that whole exchange? Peter knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to die miserably. And here he is in a jail cell where he doesn't want to be, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen to him. So he's writing this letter right before he dies. Listen to what he says next. Verse 16. This is the reminder that he gives. Think of the tent of the tabernacle as I read this. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with them and on the holy mountain. Peter's saying these aren't just stories. It breaks my heart when I hear that. They saw it. They heard it. They have a light. They have a path. They've been shown the way. And Peter says, I got to throw off this body at some point, this tabernacle I've been in, this portable thing I move around, this sin I carry on my shoulder. I got to cast it off because I'm heading to heaven. I'm on a straight and narrow path right to the presence of God. And Jesus has gone before me to prepare the way. Peter. He's like a rock, you know? Our faith is not in the tabernacle, and it's not in the tabernacle imagery. That's 3,000 years of history to show us where our faith should be, right? And And Peter knows that our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was an eyewitness to his majesty. That's Jesus. That's where our faith should lie, right? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's our hope. It's interesting, if you read new versions of that song, they took the word blood out of it. And it now says, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Why would they take the blood out? Because they didn't read Exodus, right? They're not rooted in the word. The blood is the beautiful part about this. The blood is the thing that gets exchanged so we can renew our covenant with God and live with him and dwell with him and abide with him just like it was meant to be. The blood's the key, and our generation's forgetting that that judgment, that bronze altar that's dirty and icky and uncomfortable, that's the thing we have to come to to get to God. We have to get past the altar. We've got to do it. 
the blood matters, right? It's the life exchanged. Jesus's blood, I don't want to forget his blood. As uncomfortable as it makes me, I want to remember that blood was shed so mine doesn't have to be. Praise the Lord, right? How amazing is that? Listen to what he says next. It's still in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. It's not just a guess. It's confirmed, right? Or as Ken Graves would say, it's not a feeling. It's a fact. Anyways, if you don't know Ken Graves, go do some podcasting. You'll see what I say. <laughs> He's the most manly man, macho man preacher you'll ever hear. All right? <laughs> it's a fact. Oh, and my favorite line. Christians, Christians, you're all playing. These other people, they're playing chess. And all the Christians, we're all playing checkers. People, the game is chess. All right, just saying. (laughs) This argument for Christians being active in the world and getting involved in their communities and all sorts of things. Okay, I'll get back to what my notes say. (laughs) And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Right? until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture is any private thing. There's no secret knowledge. There's nothing I've told you in a year and a half that is secret or somehow my brilliance. It's just the Bible stuff. It's the basics, right? Knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came out of the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You can trust those prophets because the bad prophets got killed. If you predicted something Old Testament land and it didn't happen, they killed you. So you didn't want to be fake prophesying. You, you know, In the tabernacle, verse 21 of our Exodus chapter, in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening till morning before the Lord. The priesthood, is going to tend this light, this olive lit, from evening till morning before the Lord. So especially at night, that light will without fail persistently be lit for all time. If God's people don't tend the light, the whole world goes blind. Right? We can't see heaven unless these priests of Aaron are going to tend this light all the time. For it's the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that every time a priest would walk in with those prayers of supplication after a sacrifice, they'd be in and out, right, to tend the showbread every week. They'd put that new bread out. But every time they opened that flap, you'd see the light shine out from inside that dark place. You'd see it bouncing off little bits of white linen and gold all over the place. Because all the acacia wood, remember, was covered with gold. So they would open that flap and it would be like, and you'd see this like flashlight shining out from inside. I think that's kind of a cool thought. I think that's what Peter's referring to there. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that's Paul. For once you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk like your children in the light, Ephesians 5, 8. The only way to see, the only way to see the word and Jesus is the Holy Spirit and the light that it provides. The word of God is the light for our understanding. It's how we see, right? It shall be a statute, this is the last part of our chapter, it shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. I think I already talked about this, like I skipped down and talked about it. It's a statute. It goes forever. It's a foundational idea for generations. You don't have to have the tent forever, but this is going to be a statute that lasts forever. So after the tent comes the tabernacle, 
or the temple. After the tabernacle comes the temple. After the temple comes Jesus. After Jesus comes you. And there's a light that shines to the world for all times. And you're going to be pressed. That oil that keeps you lit, it'll be pressed but pure. So your life will have lots of trials. And other parts of the New Testament get into that too, right? But that oil, that Holy Spirit that's in you, it will be pressed. God will give you trials. He'll give you temptations. He'll give you those struggles. And you're going to still be a light to other people. And I think that's an amazing thought, right? And then there's that on behalf of the children of Israel. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing. When we deal with the Jews today and Israel today, the Jews' job was to build this thing and then carry it around on their shoulders. Just like the priest's job kind of was horrible, this job was not a good job for this nation. And they will go through hundreds of years of trials and tribulations, and they will fail in their duties. They will get hauled off to Babylon. They will get brought back from all over the world. They'll get reassembled in 1948, right? The Jewish people are about to have a really painful history because of all this. And we should say thank you because they did all that on behalf of the children of Israel. So this statute forever that gets provided to us is because they suffered for us in the same way that Jesus is our sacrifice. The Jewish people are the ones that had to carry this image around so that we would have it to read about. That's amazing. It's also kind of like the Gentiles had it pretty easy. And thanks Jewish people for doing all this work for us, right? And specifically thank the Levites. And they kind of had this job because remember the Levi kind of screwed up so his, his descendants get this duty and respond, thanks to Levi and all of Levi's people and, and people named after Levi, right? That's not a great name in that sense, is it? Like you get all the work and you do it on behalf of everyone else. You are a servant. Maybe that is a great That's name. That's a good thing. So the Jewish <laughs> yeah. people get a 3,000-year-old job of maintaining this mirror image for us so we can see what heaven's all about. We can see what the relationship looks like. We can know how it works. Then Jesus shows up and bam, it all makes sense, right? The tabernacle is this image of heaven. God's law, his mercy, his bread, his lamp, it shows us the way. It's a light in a dark place. It's lit by an eternal oil. That altar consumes, the altar that's in front of it consumes all sin with horns of power stretched out to the four corners. The courtyard is an invitation to the world with an open gate that you just walk through, and it's beautiful. We bring our sin into that space. We bring our filth. We bring our our sheep with us. We bring that ickiness into God's presence, and God purifies it and sanctifies it. Not because of anything we did, because our pets are leaving stuff all over the courtyard. But God's people are there to take care of it. The Levites just sweep it up all day. They clean up the filth and they clean up the dust and they take care of the ash and they do it in a way that's reverent and holy and there's this oil that's ready to be lit and maintained to light the way still some of us remain in the dark and we go to work with these people and we are related to these people we love these people they're still in the dark and it's like there is a way of happiness and joy that you can have but you still want to worry about your job You still want to worry about that next event in your life that you have to be at because other people make you be there. You're still in shackles to this worldly life that you've been sold by your high school guidance counselors. And you don't have to be. You can be free of all that. And you can just serve the Lord in spirit and in truth. You can be inside the tent 
or you can come into it side his courtyards. And I just love the heart of David. I read you all those psalms. Most of those are David psalms. Just that heart where he's like, I just want to be in the courtyard. Spoken like a true shepherd, you know, and someone who knows how to care for people, someone who God makes into a leader, right? God has everything in place for human beings to come into his presence again. Hallelujah. Like we have lost this since the very beginning of Genesis when humans fell. Now God's setting it all up. We can come into his presence and we can be with him. And we can be part of that nation of priests that are sanctified, redeemed, holy. But they haven't lit the lampstand yet. That's next week, right? We got to get, so right, as of right now, as we leave tonight, there's oil in the lampstand, it's ready, but there's no light, right? You open those flaps to the tent right now, you can't see anything, it's totally black in there, right? So we need to add two more furnishings to the temple, and we'll get to those, the altar of incense and the basin of sanctification, and we'll get to those things very shortly. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word, and it is hard sometimes to deal with these concepts that have to do with our sin. Lord, it is hard to balance the idea that we are sinners, that we are fallen and broken and dirty, but we can still come into your presence. It is hard to accept the idea that we have to give anything up because our pride gets in the way. We think we're all right before you. Um, But Lord, we need to just acknowledge and, and release ourselves from the shackles Lord, of this world, and we need to live in your holy presence and in your hope. Lord, we seek not to have judgment, but we want um, to call upon the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is a sacrifice, the Lamb of God for all the world. Lord, he died on a cross for our sins, and we we claim that, Lord. We just come before that bronze altar, and, and we know that Jesus was the sacrifice for us. And we thank you for that sacrifice. Lord, we praise the Lord that we can come into your presence with thanksgiving, We can enter your courts with praise. We don't have to be ashamed before you, Lord, because you know our hearts. You know that what's going on in the inside is a purification process. Um, You know what's happening in our hearts, Lord, is something that that is bringing us to your presence. So, Lord, help us to be humble to that, to be moldable to that, and to be a servant to that. Um, Help us to be people that that never have so much pride that we aren't willing to welcome someone into your courts, someone that doesn't look like us, that doesn't act like us, Lord, someone with sin in their life, help us to still welcome them into the fellowship and have them see the light every time that little door is opened, Lord, and get curious about it and wonder where that light is coming from and what it's for. Lord, may the light in us shine brightly and not be hid, Lord, and may there be no tent over it. May there be nothing, no bushel or basket that covers the light that you've put in our hearts. Lord, may the Holy Spirit light the flame in our, in our lives so that other people can see it. They can see it from a distance and they can see sin and black tents all around us, but they can see a courtyard of joy in the middle of our lives and peace that passes understanding and joy that abounds and flows over. Lord, may our cups overflow with your grace and your joy and your peace so that the world can see in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.